let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. Uh, we're not in level 39 today, but we are enjoying your comments, your reviews, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Today, I have the very good fortune of being joined by Sir Mark Walport. Sir Mark, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Sir Mark is the Chief Scientific Advisor to the UK Government, and uh, you're very heavily involved with, indeed, I think you, you look after, the UK Government Office for Science. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Government Office for Science is? Yes, uh, the Government Chief Scientific Advisor in its present form has been going for more than 50 years now. Um, the job is basically to advise the government on all aspects of science, engineering, technology and social science for all of government policy. So it's sort of pretty broadly defined. What does that mean in practice? Well, it means basically I, we provide advice in three areas and I'm supported by the Government Office for Science. So firstly on issues of national resilience, so uh, how we can make sure that our infrastructure is as secure as it possibly can be, be it our power infrastructure or of course increasingly in the world, your world, the world of information technology, cybersecurity. Fantastic. Um, the second area is around providing evidence for government policy, so on air quality, on uh, carbon emissions. And the third broad, broad area is on science and the economy, which is how can we make the most of our extraordinary strengths in the UK in science, engineering, technology and social science, and indeed design and the arts for the economy. Well, fantastic. I, I think before I got involved with um, the Government Office of Science or, or had had the good fortune of meeting you, I didn't realise quite how much you did. So that's very interesting. But how do you how did you find yourself doing this? What's what's your own background? Um, well, the best career advice I ever had from my PhD supervisor, Peter Lachman, was that careers can't be planned. <laughs> um, and I've taken that advice very seriously. But my advice, my, my career was uh, as a medical student, as an academic physician. I became professor of medicine at Imperial College. But then I got involved in the world of science funding and science policy. Um, and in 2000, I became one of the trustees of the Wellcome Trust, one of the governors. And then in 2003, I became the director. And I was the director of the Wellcome Trust, which is an incredible uh, charitable foundation. Uh, its assets are now over £20 billion. And I was responsible for being the chief executive of that, the director for 10 years. And that brought me into contact with government a great deal around issues of science policy and medical science in particular. And so when the uh, government chief scientific advisor position became vacant, it was another um, extraordinary opportunity, which I've been lucky enough to um, be able to take up. But there's an important point, just going back to the question about um, science advice, which is that my job is not to know everything about science. You couldn't possibly. Uh, my medical school friends think it's sort of a bit odd that I'm advising on areas around energy, for example. But the point is the job is to find the best advice wherever it is. Uh -huh. So it's actually to act as a transmission mechanism between 
the outside world of science, engineering, technology and social science and the inside world of government. That's really interesting. So how do you do that? What does that process usually look like? I'm assuming there are several ways, but... Firstly, it's about getting out there and engaging with scientists, in, and I'll just use science as a shorthand for or engineering technology and the social sciences as well, but it's about getting out there. It's about talking to scientists in industry. It's about uh, working with universities, with research institutes, and there are more than 10,000 scientists working across government. Um, and my team in the Government Office for Science work very hard on finding the right experts. And so, of course, we got to know each other through the piece of work on distributed ledger technology, where we assembled a group of people who really knew about distributed ledgers. Um, and my job, if you like, was to ask the dumb questions. <laughs> Forgive me for saying they were de certainly not dumb questions, but from my experience of that was remarkable, that uh, it was a process in which you took a lot of people and a lot of knowledge and synthesized it. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to this or watching this to check out the distributed ledger beyond blockchain report um, that was done by the UK Government Office for Science. I think you did a, a fantastic piece of work. And uh, talk to me about some of the other pieces of work you've done. Has there anything been recently that you've published or um, something coming out? Yes, we published one very recently on quantum technologies. Um, and again, we tend to pick areas of clearly important technology, but also technology that, if you like, needs demystifying for policymakers. Mm -hmm. So the goal of these reports isn't to provide a highly technical report for a specialist community. It's to, to explain what emerging technologies are, what the opportunities are, what the risks are, what the different actors, be it government, the private sector, universities, might do to get the most out of the technology. Mm -hmm. And so they're very much about translating technologies for intelligent but non-specialist audiences. Um, and the interesting thing about the blockchain report is that it's been translated into many languages around the world. It, it, the work does seem to uh, seem to get carried. No, um, so you've had a speech this evening here. At, um, we're just in the background for those that are listening on the podcast and can't see the video. Um, we have St. Paul's behind us. Um, and there's a couple of interesting things that you, you told the audience that I wanted to, to pick up. And you know, one of the big subjects in financial services, but technology generally, is this idea of machine learning yeah. and machine learning and AI. And one of the things you mentioned is it's very hard to try and grasp with how do you begin to regulate some sort of um, you know, algorithm. And there have been a lot of work into that lately. Can you share with our audience a little bit of your insight into that subject so far? Well, I, I mean, I think the issue with any emerging technology is how you think about whether it needs to be regulated in the most intelligent way. And so one area where algorithms are going to be, uh, are going to be applied and are already being applied and where machine learning and artificial intelligence is in medical practice. Mm -hmm. And so at the simplest level, Analyzing the literature around safe conditions like cancer, there's a vast literature. And at the end of the day, computers can ingest all of that and potentially analyze it and hold it in a way that the human brain hasn't got the capacity to do. But then, of course, you have to translate that potentially into advice. And the point about a machine learning algorithm around, for example, cancer is that it learns from each patient. So it learns about the nature of the cancer, the histology, what it looks like under the microscope, what the response of the individual might be to a particular combination of therapy. And if you like, it's building up a huge database of individuals with cancer, the type of cancer, the response to therapy, the side effects, and it's constantly learning. And the output should help new patients to get the optimal treatment. 
But the question is, okay, what's the role of the um, artificial intelligence? Ultimately, it's got to be about advising the doctor because there are all sorts of other factors mm. in terms of you know, understanding what the impact of a particular treatment is on an individual human, where all sorts of family circumstances and other things may affect what they do or don't want to do. Uh, but the issue is, given that that algorithm changes, how do you regulate it? Because medicine is a world of regulation. Drugs are regulated, devices are regulated. Because you can do harm to people, it's an area where we want to minimize the harm and maximize the benefits. How do you regulate an algorithm where you don't exactly understand how it works and where it changes over time? It's a very real challenge. Um, and it's not an impossible problem, but it's an area that has to be thought about. And one way of thinking about it is to say, well, the best way you would monitor it is, as it were, by monitoring the continuous performance of the algorithm. So if things start going wrong, if side effects start appearing, if you like, if it starts apparently giving bad advice, you discover it as quickly as possible. But we have to be quite thoughtful about this. No, it's a very, very fair point. And there's an allegory there for financial services. If we were to use um, artificial intelligence to predict what somebody should do with their money or to move their money on their behalf, you've got a very similar set of problems. And that makes a lot of sense, which brings up this subject of, of ethics. Um, so we were quite fortunate to have the co-founder of M-Pesa on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. And uh, what we were talking about there is you know, some of the genesis of that. And you mentioned, again, in, in your talk earlier this evening, um, something about the, the role of ethics in technology and your experience and how that's worked in medicine. Could you um, kind of uh, bring to life a little bit about what you told the audience? Yes. Well, I mean, I talked a bit about M-Pesa, of course, mm -hmm. which was an extraordinary use of technology to bring financial inclusion to people who weren't otherwise included. Um, it's worth noting, actually, that that was a project that was supported by the Department for International Development, you know, a very good development project. But of course, what it brought with it was not only the ability to transfer small amounts of money, but also potentially to transfer market information, which if you're a small farmer, means that you can have access to markets in a much more efficient way without being uh, ripped off by a, a middle person or anything like that. So the issue is we tend to talk about technologies in a rather generic fashion. You know, it's a bit, it's like saying, is a distributed ledger a good thing or a bad thing? Is blockchain a good thing or a bad thing? It's a sort of slightly ridiculous question. The question always is, for what purpose are you using the technology? In what context? It's about the specifics of the technology rather than whether it's just a pure good or a pure bad. Mm -hmm because almost every technology can be used for good or for evil. Yeah, very rarely are they binary in the sense of good or evil. They are usually somewhere in the middle and all of the above. And, and from the world that I came, which is the world of medicine, ethics is a, just a part of the professional value system. It's a very explicit part of the processes whereby medical research is done because you mustn't do harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of model of thinking about the application of technologies is one that needs to be applied broadly. I think the idea of a Hippocratic Oath for finance is a very interesting idea than one we've been toying with at 11FS for some time. I think it does drive interesting decision making because it, it forces you to have ethics. And, and I think one of the area that um, financial services has really struggled with its ethics has been around this idea of industry collaboration. Uh, there's a lot of regulation around you know, how you manage antitrust and how you make sure that competitors can collaborate for a greater good. Um, but you'd mentioned you know, that industries may need to do this more going forward in, in your speech. What 
What are your thoughts on um, how that can be done and how that might affect the wider economies? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that the financial industry has already done pre-competitive collaboration. And one very obvious example is around cybersecurity, mm-hmm. where banks do work together on cybersecurity because it's not in any bank's interest for one of their competitors to be taken down by a cyber attack. Mm-hmm. And so that's an area where non-competitive, pre-competitive collaboration does already occur. Um, But there are many other areas where industry has the potential to progress faster if they work together uh, in in a pre-competitive environment. And of course, one of the issues is is around the sharing of data. And of course, data, uh, when you turn it into knowledge, knowledge is power, knowledge gives firms competitive advantage. Um, But it's possible to share data in ways that doesn't threaten the sort of the integrity of businesses and that's about defining access and giving people to access in a way that critically protects privacy and I mean that's a a really important issue which people do worry about which is the privacy of their data. Um, But that's, uh, I I talked a bit about privacy before, we tend to think of it as a sort of all or nothing binary thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It isn't and there are three sliders that you can adjust when you're thinking about privacy. The first is the, the slide of obfuscation. In other words, from totally anonymized at one end to completely open at the other. But there's a second slider, which is a slider of access, which is locked in the vaults of the Bank of England, accessible to virtually no one, or posted on the outside of this building. Um, and again, you can adjust that slider so that access to sensitive data is only available to people under tightly controlled conditions, where there will be severe penalties if they misbehave themselves. And then the third slider is the slide of regulation, legislation, and how it's enforced. And getting privacy right is about getting all of those three sliders right. Oh, that makes total sense. Well, um, that brings us to a neat point in the interview. I've just got a quick fire round of questions that we ask everybody. Um, the questions are... What yes, did no, you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, what did you want to be when you grew up, uh, when, you were, when you were a little boy? Um, I actually, I wanted to be a scientist from a very early age. Oh, fantastic. That's good. Um, next up, um, you're a busy guy. What do you do to stay on top of all of your workload? <laughs> I read a lot. Yeah, that's a very good idea. Uh, and lastly, what's your number one productivity tip? My number one productivity tip. Well, I think when faced with complexity, you do need to sort of get on with it. Don't get paralyzed. Oh, fantastic. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure.